Welcome to Spot on Safety, the program designed for safety professionals. Spot on Safety is brought to you by iWorkWise, providing safety knowledge when you need it. For more information about iWorkWise, go to iWorkWise.com. Welcome to Spot on Safety, Episode 20, OSHA Record Keeping and Reporting, with your hosts, Amy Does and Dan Smiley. Good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dan. Hey, when we finished off last time, uh, we had been talking about uh, OSHA citations and penalties, and today we're here to talk about record keeping and reporting for OSHA recordable accidents and injuries. We, we covered what is and what is not a recordable accident or injury in pretty uh, strong detail back in Podcast 13. So I re recommend that all of our listeners go back and listen to that to get details on whether it rises to the recordable uh, threshold. So today, once you, we're going to talk about once you've decided that it actually has reached that level, how do you go about the reporting portion of that? So, Amy, what do I do? I've, I've got a, a guy, he's been injured, I've decided that it is a reportable, and what do I need to do? Well, there's there's two tiers. Um, there's there's where you record your injuries in a log, or work, workplace injuries, and then there's a whole other high, higher tier um, of, of, of incidents that OSHA requires that you actually call in within eight hours. Um, and the ones you have to call in for, so this is always good to think of first, weed it out if it, um, if if you're wondering how to do it. You you basically call the OSHA's 800 number for any death that any work work related death that occurs, um, or if you hospitalize three or more employees from the same incident. Um, so the requirement for those two scenarios is you call 1-800-321-OSHA. Uh, within eight hours, and when you call, um, you sh uh, when you, whenever you make any calls to the government, I mean, we should always log who we've talked to and what time the call was um, to show that we've done due diligence. Um, but those types of incidents um, rise to that higher level, and you don't just record it in a log and let it sit around. You have to actually notify OSHA, and they may send an investigation team. So when we're talking about vessels, uninspected vessels, um, obviously this would, would only apply within three miles um, because of that whole OSHA jurisdictional aspect. So if it isn't a death or hospitalization of three or more, then we're into the recordable type of injuries where we record it in our OSHA forms and logs, um, but we don't actually have to call it in or self-report. Um, these these logs that OSHA requires we maintain uh, get kept at the site and are are only looked at uh, like pre-OSHA inspection. So if someone happens to show up for an inspection, they'll look that over. So I don't um, ever have to actually send the the log to OSHA? No, you never send the log. Um, you just keep it on site. You have to have five years of logs plus the year you're working on. Um, and that's one of the first things the OSHA inspector would ask for if they came to do an inspection so they could kind of review uh, the history of your workplace, and uh, if many people are getting injured, and if, obviously any any inspector is going to 
look and see if there's any kind of trend and then focus their inspection on, on whatever might be causing injury. So those just kind of uh, have to be maintained on site for OSHA to view uh, whenever they they come there and they want them. So if OSHA, the inspector shows up and I don't have the log or my log looks like it's incomplete, I guess that would be a red flag to start digging deeper. But is, is that a violation unto itself? Oh, yeah. And the, I think the record-keeping violations now are, are uh, generally about $1,000 for every violation of a record-keeping rule. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're going to ask for that. And if there's if there's one missing, let's say you have four years' worth, but you don't have five, um, then that would be a violation for sure. Okay, so I've got my... My form, it looks like a pretty simple form, place for an employee name, job title. It doesn't look like there's a lot of space for description here. Yeah, it's it's actually a set of three forms. And it only wants, just, to, just so everybody knows, Dan, before we get too far into it, um, you, you only have to keep these logs if you have 10 or more employees at any one time in a calendar year. So um, in your in your business. So... If you have 10 or more people on any one payroll, then you would have to keep them for that year. So that weeds out the very small employers. Um, but for everybody else, you have a kind of a set of three forms, and you uh, record all your accidents and injuries on those. And those forms are called the 300, the 300A, and the 301. Um, and they kind of all go together. The 301 is... a a more detailed record on an injury. And you don't see a lot of 301s because what people actually do is they keep their own in-house accident reports and those can be a substitute for the 301 as long as they contain the same information, similar information, or at least that as a minimum amount of information. So most most facilities really do just keep their own in-house um, accident reports uh, and they're not they're not really that detailed. If you look at them, I think there's about 18 items on there, and the questions are, you know, name, address, <laughs> you know, pretty basic things. Um, so that's the 301, and that's the the uh, the individual record of each injury and illness. And then the main form that everybody really works on is the summary, where you just you really just enter the person's name and their job title, the date they had the injury. Um, where the injury happened and uh, has a very short line for describing it. And then you check a box depending on what type of injury it is. So I don't, so you could put there under uh, describe injury, dead. Yeah. It, well, one of the boxes is death. Okay. So you wouldn't even yeah. have to describe it. Well. Just check the box. <laughs> he died. Crushed by overhead load, maybe. Okay. Crushed, you know. Killed by falling box. I mean, usually you do put a little bit of description in there so they know what happened. Or, or more likely, if they if they were unfortunate enough to work for you, died of a heart attack while being screamed at. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There is one thing in here that's kind of interesting trivia, but uh, it's it came to my attention. I kind of missed it when the new record keeping rule came out. But uh, if someone has a heart attack, you're actually supposed to report that. Um, because it, it may or may not be work-related, but the area director will make the call on that. Um, so that that wasn't the case previously that I know of. Um, so that's the only weird one where, you know, there's a line we went through before on work-related, what's recordable and what's not. Um, and heart attacks, you'd think, wouldn't be. 
necessarily, but they, they want that called in as a death, and then they're going to help you make the call on whether or not it's recordable. So you were saying earlier uh, 10 or more employees in any one payroll. So if I'm a company that generally has two or three employees, but I, you know, I hire 15 people for the month of uh, November to fill Christmas orders, then I fall under this rule. Oh, for sure. Okay. For that year that you have more than 10. Gotcha. So if I want to, if, if this is important to me and I never want to do this, I have to just make sure that I never go over nine. Mm-hmm. It seems like uh, not that big a deal to worry about such a thing like that. But I guess you need to be quite aware of what your requirements are if you jump. Or it'd be easy to be a small company that only had two or three employees and not under, and then rises up to 15 or 20 for a month and not realize what your reporting requirements are. Oh, you bet. And that, that could also be, uh, let's say you have your company, you have a crab boat, you know, and you have six people on the boat and four people in the office, but you only, you only think about it as being the six people on the boat. Well, you have 10 or more employees, <laughs> so you're keeping records. So there's some sneaky ways it can get, get there. Um, so yeah, I think the smaller employers sometimes might not, uh, have it in this, in the headlights, you know, soon enough and, uh, might miss, miss this and not keep their logs. So anyway, you've got the 301. So your detailed accident report, uh, you've got your 300, which is just a, a summary of it where you have a line for each accident. Um, and then you have the 300 a and the 300 a is an annual kind of, uh, summary. So, Basically, you add up the number of accidents you've had of each type and put the totals on it and put your uh, workplace address and how many man hours you have. And then that that um, that sheet is signed by a corporate officer or the highest ranking manager at that facility. So on a boat, that would be, you know, the captain or some corporate officer back at the office who has to sign the logs. And in the new record-keeping standard, that's actually quite important, the person who stand, who signs it. It can't be someone in HR who signs the logs. Um, it has to be um, fit into the parameters of what they require. So anyway, you, you kind of total up your OSHA 300 log every year, um, and you have to post it between uh, February 1st and April 30th in a conspicuous location so your employees can see um, what's going on accident-wise at your facility. So is the 300A, is that all-encompassing for the company? Say I had six crab boats and I'd had you know, accidents on three of them. Would I end up with crab boats that had a 300A that were posting zero accidents, or would I have crab boats that were all posting that the company had three accidents? No, it's by establishment, so it's it's for that boat. Oh, that boat, okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you just you, you have your injury reports. You keep a log of them, and once a year, you total everything um, and post it. So, pretty straightforward in general. As as soon as you realize it applies to you, um, you can go to OSHA's website and download the forms, and they actually have them in Excel, um, where they even total themselves um, as you enter things, uh, and then you just save a set for every year. Um, so yeah, once you realize you need the forms, no big deal. You just have to remember to, to, uh, get them filled out and get every T crossed and I dotted. 
Um, it could even be a penalty, for instance, for not totaling the forms. If you don't have, if you just leave it blank because you didn't have any accidents, not exactly proper. You have to write zero, you know. So an inspector might say, depending on their mood at the time, yeah, this is improper. Here's your $1,000 fine. Yeah, and they do say it. If they come in and inspect, they'll, they'll say this isn't totaled. Because they don't know if someone didn't look at it and total it like they were supposed to, or if they did, you know, it's supposed to be totaled at the end of the year. So anyway, one of those little gotchas, I guess. Sure. You know, one question I had, even though I don't think we covered this in podcast 13, um, when you're looking at what is and what is not a a work-related injury, what about when you get injured and you're not at the work site, but maybe you're traveling? To the work site. So maybe I'm going to go join the boat in Anchorage and I've, I've got a travel day here. I'm flying out of Seattle and, you know, I, I, I'm, dri- I'm, I'm driving to SeaTac and I get in a car wreck. Right. That- well, if, if you were engaged in, in activities uh, that OSHA calls it in the interest of the employer, so going up there and then it, that would be uh, work related. It would be the same if you were in a car running for parts. For instance, the boat was in the shipyard and uh, you had to go to the hardware store. Um, so if you're uh, in, engaged in going there just for work, then that, then that would be work-related. Okay. Um, how about the day that I got injured? If I, if I decide, you know, I got hurt and I, and I uh, uh, go to the doctor and I get some aspirin, maybe it's not even uh, beyond first aid, but, but I don't go back to work that day. But I come back the next day. Uh, it's always with these is the, the day of the injury doesn't count toward your days away from work or days of restricted activity. Um, so the day of the injury doesn't count at all. And you don't start counting until um, you actually are missing days beyond that. So you could you could uh, be shaken up from something that happened, let's say, be sent home for the rest of your shift, come back the next morning ready to work. And that wouldn't be um it wouldn't be a day away from work. Okay. How about uh, one of the line items for making this determination is a significant injury or illness diagnosed by a physician. So if I was at my annual physical and they diagnosed me as having cancer, is that, how does does this, Uh, a significant injury or illness diagnosed by a physician count into this matrix? If the cancer was uh, from some exposure at work, then it would be a OSHA recordable. For instance, uh, you were an asbestos abatement company and you were diagnosed with mesothelioma, um, then that could be a work-related illness. So that's exactly the things I think that they're trying to catch um, when they're saying that if you have an illness diagnosed by a physician. Um, so some of those things could, could be work-related. So that would lead to investigation to say, okay, this person has, has been diagnosed with a, a major illness. What is it that he does on the work site? Is the material that he works with or his daily task, could it relate to this? Oh, you bet. Right. And in, in this, um, to me, that's a really cool area of this, and maybe I'll digress a little bit. But when Alice Hamilton was investigating workplace you know, injuries and diseases people were getting and tracing them back to the workplace. I mean, she was one of the, the, one of the uh, founders of occupational, uh, basically medicine and uh, was trying to educate radium uh, clock dial painters 
about the fact that radium would cause bone cancer or uh, lead bathtub spray painters. Um, they were getting exposed to lead and dying of diseases at home. So th that's um, that's that started early. Um, the the kind of connection with what you do for a living and how it might cause some some serious illness um, later, or certainly the asbestos workers in Libby, Montana. You know, so um, certainly some of those illnesses could be work related, and it would take a little bit of investigation in some cases to uh, establish whether it is or not. Well, it's a little digression, and maybe requires a little speculation, but it, it sort of seems to me that. Since work-related um, exposure injuries have really gone down with OSHA regulations over the last 20 years, I, I start to see people becoming a lot more complacent again. Oh, I'm not going to get hurt. I'm not going to wear that respirator. I'm, it's not a big deal because the regulations have worked so well that really fewer people are getting injured. Have you noticed that kind of a trend, or is it just me? Um, yeah, I, I think I've seen it too. Uh, people take it for granted a little bit. Um, and it, and maybe, you know, from my early days in the fishing industry, it, it was even less so, but, and, and now maybe it's come back a little bit. I think that's just human nature. Oh, when I was in the Coast Guard, they didn't even, back in the early eighties, they didn't even know what, what respiratory protection was barely, you know, they'd sort of hand you this dirty respirator and, <laughs> you know, and it was easier not to wear it. And yeah, they, they didn't have a clue. I'm not, I'm not sure they still have a clue. Well, it. You know, these things are kind of, they can be a little complicated. And when you get it 40% uh, right, like you have a respirator on site and maybe even the cartridges are right, it's it's actually quite hard to get it the other 60% right because there's so many little things to know about it. I mean, um, I, I wish I knew uh, what I know now about respirators back when I was having to use them. So um, getting back to... Um, employees and, and how we deal with reporting things. What if a, a employee leaves your company and for some reason, uh, unrelated to the injury illness, uh, you know, they're, they're counted as days away from work? Is that How does that work out? Well, if they leave your company for, um, if, if, they, if it's unrelated to the injury, the reason they leave is unrelated to the injury, then you just simply stop counting the days of, uh, away from work. Um, so that's part of it. OSHA, OSHA has like a whole um, 1904.7 is a big section that goes through uh, tons of reasons on how you count the days and, and how you don't count the days. It's really important whoever you have filling out these forms. Um, there's a lot of little details like that in there, and they have to read through that stuff. You can't just go, oh, here, fill out some forms, put on some, you know, if there's an injury. It's not that simple. There's a whole whole bunch of injuries that that maybe shouldn't be recorded and a bunch that should. And then there's a bunch of rules about when you stop counting days. So um, all kinds of, of areas, like if the doctor recommends that you take two weeks off, but the employer comes anyway, um, then you enter the days recommended by the physician. Okay. So I, we, I know of a case recently where uh, an employee got injured and the doctor said right up front, you know, you'll need a minimum of two weeks off and then be reevaluated. If he felt better and decided, you know, oh, a week later to come back to work, firstly, we would require a doctor's note saying that he was fit for full duty. But that being a, that aside, if he came back to work, 
we'd still count the two weeks recommended by the doctor. Right. But okay. that might be one of the reasons why you'd get a revised doctor's opinion then, and you just quit counting after a week because, you know, the doctor would revise his opinion. So the same thing if the doctor gave him two weeks off of work and the employer didn't come back after two weeks. They're like, I still feel bad, right? Um, you would stop your count at the two weeks until you got more information because um, that was what the doctor said. So, yeah, it's kind of funky gray areas, isn't it, where you run into all these, there are always scenarios. People call me, you know, to this day and they say, how about this? And it's something that you never quite ran into that flavor of situation before. Um, and you have to sort through these, uh, you know, dozens of line items of what OSHA says should or shouldn't be done. It's a pretty interesting little regulatory area. Okay. So, Some of this stuff could very easily cross into like uh, the HIPAA privacy rules. Have you run across problems where, you know, somebody's injured but we really can't disclose why? Uh, they actually have a provision for that. They, OSHA calls them privacy cases. And you wouldn't enter the person's name on the OSHA 300 log um, at all. And so you would just simply write privacy case, let's say privacy case one or something, and you'd keep a separate file because these logs are um, are supposed to be available for employees and their representatives to look at. And some things like um, an injury uh, that involved an intimate body part or part of the reproductive system or some kind of uh, – illness or injury re resulting from a sexual assault at work or HIV inspection, in infection or tuberculosis. Um, there are certain things that, that would uh, be considered privacy cases, and OSHA has a list of those in 1904.29. Uh, and um, for those, you just simply write privacy case and give it a number and keep the details secret. I think that pretty much looks like it covers it. If I want to get a hold of copies of these record forms, where can I get them? Do I have to make them myself? Uh, no. You just go to OSHA.gov, um, and uh, they changed their website recently. So you just look look around on the front page there for um, the record-keeping uh, hyperlink, and you can download PDF copies um, or a copy in Excel. Um, and maintain them electronically if you want, or uh, print it out and handwrite it. They also have full, not full, but detailed instructions on how to fill out the log. Um, and then all their rules related to record keeping, if you want to educate yourself, let's say you're the person who's keeping these forms, you would look under uh, 29 CFR 1904. And you could read through all that and get to be quite, quite an expert yourself. Um, there's one thing that one other thing I think we should mention, Dan, um, occasionally uh, employers get a survey from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And when they get this survey, uh, it, it's a survey of occupational injuries and illnesses, and it asks for some of the uh, information you have on your OSHA 300 forms. And if you ever get that survey, you're required to fill it out and send it back. So you don't have to send your OSHA 300 forms to anybody. They're only viewed on site. But occasionally uh, people get this Bureau of Labor Statistics um, survey. And it, it's supposed to be random. Um, you know, I don't know. I've worked with the Bureau of Labor Statistics a whole lot. But from what I've seen, some companies, uh, they either never get them 
or I have one facility I work for and they got it seven years in a row and they're in a small industry um, and whatever, the BLS's computer was just stuck on them. So they weren't getting a very accurate survey since they were just surveying one workplace. So it's kind of kind of funky, but it is uh, legally required that you send that thing back if you ever do get it. So we want to make sure that if you have a, 10 or more employees, that you're maintaining your logs, that the people who are maintaining them are familiar with the regulations, that they've, they've researched them and, and recognize what does and does not need to be recorded. This is not a job you want to just pass off randomly to your administrative assistant without providing a level of education. If you have a question, you should contact uh, the safety professional that you regularly work with and make sure that you completely understand how the record-keeping process is done. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I'd say so. Okay. Well, as always, thank you for your time, Amy, for helping keep us all out of trouble and educate us on the ins and outs of OSHA and other safety topics. Anytime, Dan. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Spot on Safety. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, you can email us. The address is spotonsafety.com at iWorkWise.com.